So as I said, this morning's teaching is on the khandhas, the five aggregates. And it's another pointer towards emptiness. And I'm hoping through this morning's uh, discussion and this afternoon's exercise, you can begin to see how using this schema of the aggregates is actually really helpful in practice and in life, and that to some extent you're already doing this or using these, even though you mightn't have conceived of them in this way. They are the field of our meditation practice. They are what we work with all the time. We just might not single them out or give them this name. And also hope that you're beginning to see how all of these teachings interweave. Um, It was hard actually to pick which suttas to uh, put into the study guide to just talk about the aggregates because they also always talked about uh, Sakaya Ditti and conceiving of self that Guy talked about yesterday or dependent origination that Gil talked about last night. You can see how these teachings all interweave and also what I find so inspiring is the congruency of the Buddha's teachings, how he's always um, pointing to the same things, pointing in the same uh, direction, saying, look at your experience. And yes, there's all these different ways, but it has the same, it has an inherent uh, internal consistency. And the aggregates are, you know, they're throughout this study guide. There's so um, many times there have been the quotes that we use have them in it because they were woven throughout the suttas. The Buddha talked about them a lot. If you want to um, just have them in front of you, you could look at uh, sutta uh, quote 12 at the bottom of page 5 that I actually used in the um, uh, talk on the three characteristics just to get the list. In this particular quote, the Buddha is talking about wise and unwise ways to relate to the aggregates, and we'll work with that this afternoon but just so you have the list of the five in front of you as I go through them. What I want to do now is just, again, list them briefly and then uh, spend a bit more time with each one. So the first one is out of form. And it generally refers to everything in the material realm is rupa. Anything that's solid composed of the four great elements is rupa. But for our p- and, and form, past and present, internal and external, um, past, present and future. But for our meditation practice and for insight, the most relevant one that we relate to is just the body. So that's mainly what I'll be talking about when I use this fo- uh, word form or rupa in the Pali. The second is feeling tone. Pali is Vedana. Many of you are familiar with this as this quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant that arises with every sense contact. Every sense contact has one of these three aspects to it. Um, Very important part of our meditation practice. And again, an important part of the teaching on dependent origination that we'll look at tomorrow in more detail. The third is this uh, quality of factor of perception, sanya, in some ways somewhat elusive, but really important in um, our conditioning. Sanya is the knowing or naming or recognizing of experience. So it's as simple as labeling something, 
but it also refers to how we single out things. You know, we, we only perceive what we perceive and the rest of experience is kind of left aside. So it's both the knowing and naming it also refers to how we single out experience. The fourth is mental or volitional formations. And this is a big catch-all. The Pali word is sankharas. It's a word that's used in different ways, in different contexts. But it's really all of the contents of the mind, um, you know, from, from just our thoughts and emotions to states of minds, uh, whether they're meditative states like equanimity or concentration, intention, all of this is in this, this field of sankharas. And then lastly, consciousness. Vijnana is the Pali word. And this is the, the knowing that happens when there's a contact. So in, in the, uh, traditional Pali, actually I'll go into that when we talk about it. It's the simplest kind of knowing that arises um, bef- really before um, perception. It's just the knowing that something's there and then perception labels it. So if you remember in your study guide, I think it's on, where is it? It's early in, it's pe- quote two on page two, where the Buddha talks, you don't need to look at it, it's very brief. The Buddha says, basically, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. I always find that a helpful lens to look at any teaching that I come across. This is the framework. You could Every teaching of the Buddhas, he said it's about suffering and the end of suffering. So when I'm exposed to a new teaching or I'm inquiring into a teaching or a practice, that's what I come back to. How does it relate to suffering and the end of suffering? This is the, the skillful way to look at the Buddha's teaching. And he definitely referred to the aggregates in this light about how the unwise relationship to them cause suffering, wise relationship is the end of suffering. So understanding the aggregates, how they function, how they come together, is essential to understanding how we suffer. The Buddha even said, as long as I did not understand the five aggregates in terms of their individual nature, their arising, their cessation, and the way to their cessation, I did not claim to have attained perfect enlightenment. So the understanding of the aggregates was essential to his awakening. And he'll use the aggregates in talking about all different kinds of teachings. You know, as I said in the quotes, it's talking about how we conceive of self in the past, in the present, in the future. It's central to dependent origination, um, to self-view, to comparing. It's very important as we open to the teachings on impermanence to see that the aggregates themselves are impermanent. And it's right there in the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth, the Buddha said, now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So it's right there in his description of suffering. Are the five aggregates subject to clinging. And this um, way of phrasing it is, is very important. Panch upadana kanda. Panch is five, 
Upadana clinging khanda. Panchupadana khanda is how the Buddha usually refers to the aggregates because in an unwise relationship to them, we cling to them. We're identified with them. When there's not clinging, the aggregates can still be there and there's not suffering. So this is central. But we do cling and therefore we suffer. We do cling to these aspects of our experience. So this is what the Buddha is saying. You know, this is where you need to... If you, if you, if you want to come to the end of suffering, you need to look at these different ways that you cling. Because you, know, you could divide up your experience into many different categories, and even the Buddha did in different lists. You know, he'll say, oh, there's this way of looking at your experience, or this way of looking. A very common one was the five aggregates. But I think what the Buddha saw was that these are the five ways we most commonly identify with experience and create a sense of self out of, and therefore suffer. These were the five most common ways that we might do that. To you, some of them mightn't seem that common, but I think if they're not common, then they're insidious in some way. There's some clinging or grasping that happens at this level that if we don't notice it, is going to be an impediment to a sense of freedom or awakening. As you become more familiar with the aggregates, you can actually work with them in skillful ways. As I said earlier, we don't tend to include them in regular meditation instructions because it, it requires quite a bit of explanation and some subtlety of understanding to, to point to them and to begin to experience them. But the more we get familiar with this schema, the more it's just another doorway saying, oh, perhaps it's this little place that I'm suffering, or this is what's actually having a strong impact on my experience. And again, by noticing it, by bringing it into awareness, there's a possibility of release. If we don't know that this is happening, we could be working, you know, all really intent over here, looking at this and seeing how we're caught, and there's this whole other thing happening over here that we're not aware of. The aggregates in its, in its broad view encourages us to look in both the common ways we know we experience suffering, a lot around mind and body, but these subtle aspects of mind that we mightn't notice unless they were pointed out to us. And so the Buddha invites us to see um, the aggregates as how they're affected by clinging. What happens when we cling to, identify with one of these aspects of our experience? Because their nature is the same as the three characteristics. They're impermanent. They're unreliable. There's nothing solid there. If we cling to them, if we try to hold on to them, if we try to create a strong sense of self about them, we're going to suffer. This is inevitable. This is what the, the teaching points to. And normally in our meditation practice, we start where um, I started off our meditation, relating to mind and body. And most of the time, you know, that's enough. And mind, actually all of the, the four aggregates apart from Rupa are all aspects of mind. But most of the time in the mind uh, uh, door, we're really looking at thoughts and emotions, concepts maybe, not perhaps the more subtler things of Vedna and um, perception and consciousness. 
the aggregates is encouraging us, as I've been saying, to get a little more subtle, to actually break down, the deconstruct, the word I used before, this, um, this aggregate of mind and see the different ways we can create a sense of I, me, or mine through my body, my feelings, the feeling tone, my perceptions. So this deconstruction is really such a helpful way to relate to our meditation practice as a way to find um, freedom. Because when something is solid, it's impermeable. We don't have a way in. Uh, Through the mindfulness, through this steady attention, we start to see the constructed nature. That basically everything on this plane of existence, this material plane, is constructed. As we deconstruct it, more avenues in, more possibilities of finding a skillful relationship to, more possibilities of releasing. Something that's huge and impenetrable, it's like, how do I let go of that? But I can find this little way of letting go here, or this little shift in relating here that releases something. So it's all part of a skillful means of how to relate to experience. And I think we've been emphasizing, uh, Gil talked last night, about how the Buddha talked about and it's skillful to relate to our experience as a process rather than a noun. That it's something that's happening that actually we are doing. And it's this arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing of all of these different causes and conditions. Again, this helps to break down this sense of solidity that it's in process, that we're a verb, we're doing all the time. There's this action going on. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who's a, a Buddhist scholar, quite um, very well respected, has a lot of writings available online and, and uh, often has really interesting ways of talking about things. Um, he, he has a whole uh, little piece on the aggregates that I found very helpful. And in it, he said, the aggregates are best understood not as objects, because that would actually be a real misunderstanding, but as activities. For an important passage in the suttas defines them in terms of their functions. So again, functions rather than things. Form, which covers... a. F- Physical phenomena, which covers physical phenomena of all sorts, both within and without the body, wears down or deforms. So it's really pointing to the impermanent nature of form. Feeling feels. Feeling feels pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain. Perception labels or identifies objects. Consciousness cognizes, knows the six senses along with their objects. And he has a little piece about the khandhas. The five khandhas, fabrication is the word he uses, the the, um, mental formations, is the most complex. Passages in the canon define it as intention, but it includes a wide variety of activities, such as attention, evaluation, and all the active processes of the mind. It is also the most fundamental khanda, for its intentional activity underlies the experience of form, feeling, etc. in the present moment. So really this intention that we're not going to talk about so much, but you probably know the importance of intention, of this choosing that happens. Again, out of causes and conditions, 
but that underlies what we perceive, how we feel about things, what, what, how we relate to the body. So it's how to relate skillfully to the aggregates, to the khandhas, as something we do, as something that's happening rather than something we are. It's not just another thing to solidify around, to make an object object around. And especially to see the clinging aspect, that the grasping is very much part of our experience of the khandhas. Yet they are just conditioned arisings, arising and passing, changing all the time. If we see that, there's freedom. So if you turn to your study guide, uh, quote 31 points to this conditioned nature. And I actually asked for this to be included, even though it doesn't say a huge amount different, to get a woman's voice into our study guide. This is, and there's actually quite a, uh, I shouldn't say quite a lot, there's a whole um, section of the canon, the Theragata, that uh, has the um, verses of the enlightened nuns, but this is actually included in the connected discourses. So this is the bhikkhuni sailor, and she dresses, and Mara comes to her and basically tries to disturb her by getting her all worked up about who are you, And this is, if you remember, we talked about the Buddha said, this is not the useful question. But how did you come to be here? All these questions. How was I? You know, where am I going? What was I in the past? What happens to you? And Bhikkhuni Sela says, I'm not going there. I know what's happening here. And I know what my experience is. It's just causes and conditions. Nothing has made not made by itself, it's not self-arising, it's not made by any external God or creator, it's conditioned. And there's this just lovely um, metaphor uh, talking about the conditioned nature of our experience and the aggregates. The seed is sown in the field, it grows depending on the factors of nutrients and moisture. Just so the aggregates, these five aggregates and the elements, she's talking about the four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water that constitute all matter, the six bases of contact, dependent on a cause, with that, when that cause is break up, they will cease. And as often, I mean, sorry, as always happens in these stories, Mara, and I love this personification of Mara. I mean, you'll often read that when the Buddha or Bhikkhuni or Bhikkhu sees him, he scowls and scuffs a rock and scuffs a pebble and slinks under a rock and sort of goes, humph. You know, it's helpful to think of Mara. He's conquerable. We can know Mara and just say, no, it's not like that. I'm not a solid thing. I'm just this flow of experience. And so sad and disappointed, he disappeared right there, the Bhikkhuni sailor, new Mara. So the Buddha was known for his um, skillful way of teaching, that he took both the teachings of his time, I talked about that a little in my other talk, and kind of converted them into a, a new and radical understanding. And he also took everyday objects, everyday experiences, and made them into something as a teaching. Uh, there's this famous line where he is exhorting his followers who b- come to awakening to go out and teach for, out of compassion 
for the many folk. And he, he said, in the idiom of the people, teach to them in a language they can understand. Now, the aggregates mightn't seem as a word or as even, even as a teaching that understandable, but hopefully we'll break it down a little. But in the Buddha's time, this word aggregate simply meant heap or bundle, but implied in it is something you carry around, something big that you carry around. It's also for us a geological term, and again, I think that's why it seems a little confusing. It's like, what is that? It's a bunch of stuff glommed together, but it's good. In, I mean, that makes sense to have that meaning. Um, aggregate a, a, is a bunch of different kind of crushed rock they use for construction. You know, they use it in ec- economy and statistics to aggregate things, but it always has this meaning of a bunch of disparate stuff being somehow brought together and stuck together in some way. I think I mentioned that last year Guy and I went on a pilgrimage to India, and so it was wonderful being in India. And as I've said, that some ways in which, of course, India is well in this 21st century, all our call centers in India, all of those technical questions, they go to India. They're some of the most sophisticated thinking and mathematical advances and scientific technical exploration is coming out of India. But rural India hasn't changed that much. You, know, you go out of the cities and there's still ox carts and people um, you know, planting rice paddies by hand and, and you know, it, it doesn't feel that different. And so being in India, you know, getting a sense of what the Buddha saw, we were seeing things that weren't that different. Mud huts, people collecting dung to make fire and, and patting them up on the sides of houses. One of the things that was really common to see, and you know, the first time we see that, see it, saw it, it's like in the distance, all you could say is, what is that? What is that? What is that? And you know, we're often driving along so it would come closer, and all you would see would be this huge mammoth, kind of circular mass of some kind of stalks or twigs or something. Maybe there were corn husks or wheat sheaves or whatever. And underneath, you'd see two little legs because the bundle was so big. Someone was walking there often. It was strapped to their head. They were bowed under it, and they were walking beneath this kanda of stuff. It was so palpable what the Buddha had seen that he was talking about. Sometimes you'd see an even huger thing, and you'd say, what is that? And it was a cart that was, you know, it would flop down on the sides and would go up to the How are they getting that all to hang together? But somehow... They did. Sometimes it was a truck that was piled like that. You got the sense of a kanda, a pile of stuff that was burdensome, that we carry around, that we stick together. This is what the meaning of this word is, and this is how we can understand the aggregates. It's this bundle or burden of things that we glom together, and we cling to them, we try to hold them together, but their very nature is different from that. There's not an actual center or solidity to this. So as I pointed to in the meditation, you're already working in this field of the aggregates. As soon as you're aware of mind and body, this is the field of the aggregates, kind of deconstructing your experience. Add on feeling tone, Vedana, which we often do in retreat, Again, getting more subtle about constituent parts of our experience. Sometimes you've you've practiced with and been aware of awareness itself. 
not so much focused on the object, but the knowing of the object. And those of you that have done this know what a different relationship there is when we settle back and don't kind of reach out for objects, but just stay with the knowing. What a sense of ease and peace and unentanglement there is. And the Buddha adds to this perception, this knowing, recognizing. Oh, that's, it. that's what he adds, the perception. And so it's interesting how he's breaking this mind that we, you know, we, we usually just, oh, you know, this is me, this is my thoughts, this is how I relate. In breaking it down, again, different doorways in to see ways we um, identify self and ways we cling Now, as I said, there are possibly many other ways you could break this down. There are other lists that the Buddha used. In this list, the five aggregates, this is what he thought was important to highlight. I kind of go with, I have to trust him on this one. You know, he was right pretty much every other time. Let's just go with him with this one and see what's it like when we look in this way at our experience. So let's go through and see what he's pointing towards as places of awareness. Now the first one we're lucky. He starts with rupa, body. We, you know, it's where we start in, in our meditation practice, breath and body. It's the f- first thing we're often aware of. Um, as I said, it does include everything in the material realm, but I'll speak mainly about body. And it includes the five sense doors. All of the aspects of our experience of smelling and tasting and hearing and touching, etc. This is all within the realm of the body. And, you know, you're probably aware, this is the most common place that we identify. Me. I'm Sally. This is, this is me. This is very much me. You probably know that Mullah Nazardine story, the Sufi mystic, where he went to the bank to withdraw some money, and the bank said, well, before we give you this money, you have to identify yourself. So he pulls out a mirror and goes, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> that's what we do. We look in a mirror, that's me. What are, we, what are we saying is me is this external form, is the body. But are you your liver or your spleen or your heart? We don't tend to identify so much with that. What we're taking is a concept of the body, this external visage of the body, what we see. That's what we identify with so much. And, you know, a guy talked about all the different ways we relate to the body. You know, we own it. We're in the body. This is, this is mine. But look at so much in the realm of the body, how much is out of your control. I mean, virtually everything. You know, we can control some things through diet and through exercise. And these days we can change a lot through, you know, plastic surgery and beautification of all kinds, modification of the body. But can you control your height? or the color of your hair, and I mean naturally, of course you can color it, but just the natural color of your hair, or the size of your feet. Yet we feel such a sense of responsibility, um, burden around the body. My feet are too big, or too small, or they're like this, they're too misshapen, or whatever. No control over so much of the body. You know, how our body works internally, the illnesses we're subject to. Can you control that? Yet this sense of responsibility and ownership is so drummed into us, we can feel huge amounts of judgment and and self-criticism 
around our body, whether our hair is straight or curly or exists at all. Can we control, control that without resorting to unnatural means? No. So we have so many distorted ideas around the body. And this culture today is just exacerbating those. And I just the other day saw um, a video clip where they took a scene from Baywatch where, you know, everyone's always wearing bathing suits. There was a man, he was running along a beach, and he was quite well-built. You know, I'm sure they always get men like they do the women that are, you know, well-built, well-formed, we call attractive. And now there's this software that they can take any person and manipulate them. So they could take this man who was already well-built and make him look like, you know, 30 or 40% more muscular. And they could do that throughout the whole movie. So the actor could come into the movie looking like a string bean. And what you'd see is, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because that's the ideal. Everyone should be tall and thin or muscular or, you know, six-pack abs or whatever. We get this message, and it's so distorted to where now their photo, you know, virtually every photo that you see is Photoshopped these days. I really think that's true, virtually. Certainly in a fashion magazine, I think it's 100%. To the extent of they make, there's this, it was in the news a little while ago, so it was so shocking. They took this beautiful young woman, already rail thin, as they are as models, and made her so thin she looked like an alien. You know, did you see that? It was, it was like she looked weird, and yet they're putting this up there. This is what we should look like, especially for women, but I'm, I shouldn't say that. It's happening for men, too, that there's this sense of, of um, how one should look like. It's a really distorted sense of body and uh, the health of the body. I mean, I'm a relatively healthy person. If there's one thing that, you know, I can identify with as being healthy. And if something goes wrong with my body, it's like, that shouldn't happen. You know, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I take care of myself. It's like something's wrong that my body is aching in this way or that I don't feel 100%. All of these ways we relate to the body. Again, I pointed to in my talk the other night, it's impermanent, yet we have this sense, this is me. So, as I said the other day, you know, yes, you could sign it the per- you, you are still pretty much the same person who woke up this morning. Maybe the same as yesterday, but are you the same as last week? How far back do you have to go to really see? One year, five years, ten years, twenty years? What is there that we're taking to be solid and permanent? It's, it's not actually there. You know, they say that in, within seven years, every single cell in our body is a new cell. What is it we're identifying with? Again, this is not to deny this relative sense of self that's useful. You know, that, that I know, you know, which jacket is mine and which body is mine and we can pass each other in the hallways and not bump into each other. But to use this reflection to see that the clean, we're clinging to something, we're clinging to a concept, not an actuality. So we need to have a wise relationship to the body. The body is our vehicle for awakening. Body is an expression of nature. So we take care of the body. This is not about denying the body. If you remember the the Buddha said, ascetic practices, denying the body, being unskillful around the body, not helpful. So we have a healthy relationship to the body, but we don't own the body. We don't 
uh, identify with the body as me and mine. The next of the um, aggregates is Vedana. Many of you are familiar with this teaching, the fact that every contact experience has this quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And we'll talk a lot more about this in the talk on dependent origination. But what happens when something's pleasant? What happens when something's pleasant? What happens when something's unpleasant? Push away. What happens when something's neutral? We move on. We don't notice. We deluded. We space out. This is why this understanding or this connection to Vedna is so important because of what it leads to. If we can just leave Vedna as Vedna and don't cling to it, not a problem. Vedna is there, whether, 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 how, you know, whether we, however we relate to it. Every experience has a Vedna. It might move more and more to neutral as, as the mind cools out, but the Vedna is still there. It's the clinging to it, it's the reaction to it that is the challenge. And to start to see how we orient around our likes and dislikes, both in our immediate experience, again, moving away from what we don't like, moving towards what we like, but even building our whole lives. I think Guy said this about getting more pleasant experiences, avoiding unpleasant ones. All of the strategies and energies that we uh, engage in to just do that, to get more pleasant, avoid unpleasant, all of the apparatus that's out there to feed us in that way. You know, all of the media and advertising, it's like, oh, this is going to do it. This is going to be pleasant. This is enticing. This is that whole world. As we look more closely at this uh, aspect of experience, we see that this too is conditioned. What I think of pleasant, you might think of as unpleasant. What I don't notice for you is incredibly um, annoying. So we start to see that this too is, in, uh, uh, is impermanent and conditioned. And how we, as I said, orient our lives to um, focusing what brings us pleasure. And all of the cliques that you can see in, in life, you know, they start in high school, but now, you know, there's a, in the Dharma scene, there's what they call the Dharma punks, which is great. You know, it's bringing the Dharma to a younger generation. Noel Levine is a central figure, and he's shaved head and tattooed all over and wears these often these baggy shorts and his, has these tattoos. And then I start to see the people who connect with him, and they're shaved head and tattooed. And we have, it's like you rebel, but you all rebel the same way. I mean, we all did this, didn't we? As hippies, you know, you're rebelling, you grow your hair or wear the flowery dress. But you all tend, that becomes pleasant. As in your aversion to something and going to what's pleasant, there becomes an identity around what you feel is pleasant. And you gravitate to people who share that same relationship to those experiences. So we create a whole identities around the Vedana. So beginning to see that Vedana is conditioned and the way that you relate to something as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is not an absolute truth. It's conditioned. Something that's pleasant for you, unpleasant for someone else. Something that was pleasant today is unpleasant tomorrow. Something that was pleasant in this moment 
as it gets stronger or you get tired of it, it becomes unpleasant. The very same thing. So we start to look at the conditioned nature, even of Vedna. Now the next uh, aggregate is sanya, perception. It's in some ways very subtle, but it's hugely important in the Buddha's teachings and interesting that he highlighted it. So in our um, understanding of the world, we kind of assume that we're sharing a shared reality, that as I see the world, you see the world. And a lot of the times that's true. I mean, we can see, you know, here's the bell, here's the striker, I hit the bell, there's a sound. We you know, have a sense we're all hearing the same sound. It's this rather pleasant tone. Um, but if we look a little more closely we can see that that's not actually true. So we had a great example of this yesterday. The sound that was coming, now we know what it was, the sound coming through the sound system. In the beginning, I mean, we were discussing, we were talking with the caretakers, what is that? Is it? Mu- I thought I heard music. No, it wasn't music, it was just kind of beeping or static and... You know, is it this or that? And, and then is it someone? Is someone doing something? No, it's just random. It's in the sound system. No, it's someone's cell phone. Someone's cell phone is on and it's picking up these signals. No, someone is listening to a Walkman. And they're, you know, we're hearing just the, you know, through the earphones. Or something's on and someone doesn't know it. And we're going through all these theories. And with every different theory, we'd have a different relationship to that sound. And even that yesterday morning, as I was sitting and, and the room got quiet, and I don't know whether it's a little louder, I, I got clear it was sound. You know, it was music. It was music. And I would see how I would go between, because I could feel it was coming, it felt like it was coming from this side. It's like someone <laughs> is doing something. And I would feel this rising of who is it, you know, and every now and then, I, you know, if, if I didn't pay attention, it was just in the background, but if I paid attention to it, if I singled it out, then my eyes would open. It was like, you know, who is doing this thing to us? And then I'd realize, you're all very peaceful over there. No one looked like they were listening to a Walkman. So I'd, and then everything would just drop, and they would hear it, and it was actually quite pleasant, and I would have no reaction at all. And then it would get a little louder, and again, you know, so you could just see how we related to it. And even in how people talk to us about it. Some people actually thought it was lovely, you know, it's this kind of background noise. Other people, like, who was this? Who's doing this? You can just see the same experience, and we all had all these different relationships to it. This is Sonia. And I really saw if I singled it out, if I kind of lent into it, it got louder and more annoying. If I just sat relaxed back and let it come and go, no problem whatsoever. It was just this faint kind of background music, not even at the level of music. It's a, this, this was great. We had all this shared experience yesterday, and I thought it would be interesting afterwards to just go around the room and see all the different ways that people related to it. I mean, you can perhaps talk about it as we do our exercise this afternoon. Maybe I'll remember to include that in the instructions. Um, there's this great story um, of this man rowing a boat on a river, and it's very foggy. You can barely see, 
outside, you know, outside the perimeter of his boat. And all of a sudden, this other boat looms out of the fog really fast and bangs into him. He's sort of, who is that? You know, don't you know? It's really foggy. You have to go really slowly. He's getting really angry. And then the boat comes into view, and there's no one in the boat. Empty boat. What happens to the anger? No one to be angry with. Nothing there. And we see how we create these stories by what we notice, by what we notice. And when we're happy, when, when we're in a good mood, everything seems beautiful, doesn't it? Everything is, oh, it's so great. Uh, and even the annoying person becomes kind of endearing. And when we're irritated, it's like nothing is working. You know, you can't even button your shirt properly and everyone is annoying to you. We're doing this all the time. Through, it, it, uh, Sanya is conditioned, so it can be conditioned by long habitual patterns or by our immediate experience. We're singling out what we're noticing. And through that very singling out, creating more conditioning, just through picking out those objects. So um, it's really hard to notice that we're doing this. It's so immediate and so part of our everyday functioning. But through this, we construct the world, through this aspect of singling out and noticing what we want to know. You can sometimes see it in deep meditation, you know, as you see how something arises to the level of perception and how you're relating to it. Or even in the opening of the eyes when you've been really quiet and you see the world coming into form, form and shape and color. There's this great little story from um, Oliver Sacks, that neurologist. I, I love reading his writings. He's always talking about you know, how we view the world and how when our brain is impacted in some way, it really changes how we view the world. And this is a story of a blind man named Virgil. He was actually sighted until he was four or five years old. So he could see as a youth, um, became blind, was blind for 40 years or more, And then they finally had an operation that would cure him of the blindness. They were pretty sure it would work. And their idea was they would he would have this operation, they would take the bandages off, and he'd go, Hallelujah, I can see. This is what happened. They took the bandages off. The first moment he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up, all meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blur came a voice that said, Well, Then and only then did he realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face, and indeed the face of his surgeon. As Virgil explored the rooms of his house, investigating, so to speak, the visual construction of the world, I was reminded of an infant moving a hand to and fro before their eyes, waggling their head, turning it this way and that, in the primal construction of the world. Most of us have no sense of the immensity of this construction, for we perform it seamlessly, unconsciously, thousands of times every day at a glance. But this is not so for a baby, and it was not so for Virgil. So this recognition of this as a bell, I mean, it's a bit of an unusual bell. We all know it as a bell because we've been here, but if you brought someone in off the street, you know, they'd think it was something completely different, you know, a, a pot plant to put, a plant to, a pot to put plants in or something. So this is perception, this recognizing, naming, and also singling out. And what 
gets interesting about this is once we start to notice it, we can actually change our perception, change what we're choosing to notice. You may have had the experience, perhaps, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know people's names, this woman was talking about it earlier, when you were, no, I think it was you, um, Laura? Um, When you were focusing on disturbance, that's what you noticed, and disturbance got bigger. When you said, no, I'm going to change my perception from disturbance to peace, peace got amplified. Peace became more accessible. This is the functioning of sanya, of perception. So it's, it's so interesting to think about what it's like to work on this level. Again, don't go crazy about trying to notice this. In all of these, my uh, metric is, am I contracting around it? Am I, you know, c- can I open a little? Is there suffering or clinging here? It's happening so much, it's hard to actually stay under it. Uh, the next is sankharas, which, as I've said, is this uh, all of the contents of the mind, including aspects of the mind like intention and attention and, and meditation experiences. We talk so much about this in our meditation retreats, and most of us, are, all of us, I think, are very familiar with walking, working with it as an aspect of our meditation and seeing how we identify with it, that I'm not going to say a lot about it. In some ways, though, we identify more with our thoughts and our emotions than our body. I mean, we kind of get, you know, even though I was joking before about taking it to be solid, I mean, we look in the mirror, we see the hair's getting grayer, the wrinkles are growing, its gravity is taking effect, you know, we see that happening. But our thoughts and our moods and our emotions, they're really me, aren't they? That's really where it's happening. So to really start to look at this sense of identification that happens, and particularly as meditators, what happens when that chatter drops away? When that obsession with my planning and my remembering and my agendas, what's there then? If you are your thoughts, what happens when the thoughts stop? Or the emotions cool out and there's just this sublime peace and quiet? You can get identified with that, of course, but it's a much subtler level. There's not that sense of self. The sense of self relies on this chatter, relies on the liking and disliking, relies on the stickiness, the engagement. So we look and see what's there when that all drops away. And the last of the um, aggregates is, again, even more subtle, consciousness, vijnana. Again, as meditators, we're kind of perhaps familiar with, not putting much, uh, so much emphasis on the object, but those moments when it's more with the knowing. This knowing of the arising in any of the six sense doors. So the, the teaching is that there's a sound, that's in the material realm, there's the ear door, the organ of the ear, and then there's ear consciousness is what hears. Taste consciousness, taste. Uh, eye consciousness sees all of these six sense doors, this arising um, of consciousness. Again, we can get into, that's the, the traditional understanding, but it's really this knowing. And, you know, sometimes what, what object is being known it can be subtle. It's this ability to know, 
to know. And we don't normally, we're so engaged with the object, we don't notice that there's this aspect that's just the knowing. And again, in deep meditation or these moments where we just rest with that, there's a letting go that's quite profound. But we can get identified here too as the knower, the one who's watching, out, you know, looking, even as we settle back, I'm still looking at the world. The Buddha said that too is a place of fixation. It's very subtle here. You know, it's actually helpful. You know, it's a kind of helpful meditation practice to just be the knower, but to recognize we have to let go of that too at some point. And to see that this knowing is arising and passing too. Again, there's discussions we could have about this, but let's stick with this understanding of the consciousness arising and passing, even as it seems continuous. Again, we identify because it's always there. seems like it's always there. But the reality is more like the movie screen where the individual frames are running by at such a speed they seem seamless. But if we really look and see, and there are people who have and have said, you know, there are 18 trillion mind moments, um, and that's the arising and passing happening so quickly, it seems seamless. But there's an impermanence to that too. We can tune in to that. So don't make this, don't try to take this up in some complicated way and, and figure it out. Really, the aggregates is just a pointing to. Um, experience in more subtle ways, we can only notice what we notice. Knowing this is a schema, having some sense of the, the complexity of what's happening in this simple experience of having your eyes open and seeing a room full of people, um, knowing all these things are happening, you can, again, do the deconstruction. But don't force this. Just notice what you notice. And start where it's simple, as I said in the beginning, body and mind. This is the beginning of the aggregates. Just even noticing that, noticing how they impact each other. Then bringing in the Vedana, the feeling tone, and seeing what happens as we are being awareness to that. And then perception, sanya. As we discuss it this afternoon, if it's not clear to you, hopefully it'll get a little more clear. But the main thing is to go back to that original teaching that I started with. The Buddha saying, formally as now, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So this is how I work with the aggregates. If I notice there's suffering, and I don't mean, you know, beating on the breast, lamentation, wailing. I mean the subtlest form of contraction, of resistance, of irritation, of anxiety. What's happening in one of these areas? There's some way I'm conceiving. There's some way I'm perceiving. There's some way I'm taking some aspect of my experience. This is sanya. And enlarging it. So that's all I see. All I see is my limitations. Or all I see is the ache in my knee and I'm about to become a cripple. And I can change that perception. I can open up the doors of perception. Notice where there's clinging. Notice where there's identification. See the conditioned nature. See that these aspects of our experience are impermanent, arising and passing. They're impersonal. We don't control them. We can't say, body don't ache. Mind, don't think about that. Think about this. 
And again, even as I say that, the trained mind can do that, but we're talking about our minds, which most of the time aren't trained. And see how holding on leads to suffering and letting go leads to freedom. This is our practice again and again and again. And to feel it happening physically, especially this sense of self, I've been talking to people about that, how you can feel it physically, this contraction, this resistance, this, just this energetic um, arising, and then you can let it go. With that noticing, if you notice something, you can begin to relate to it skillfully. You can work with it. You can let it go and assume that natural peace and ease that we've been talking about. It's there any moment that we let go, stop clinging, and stop conceiving. I want to finish with um, a text that's in your study guide, number 32. This was, uh, it's a ballad of liberation from the Khandas by Ajahn Mun. It's actually, this is just an excerpt from a much longer piece. Uh, Ajahn Mun was a revered Thai forest meditation master, very deeply practiced. There's a great book out now, a biography of Ajahn Mun, um, really fierce practitioner. So my um, people would often describe him in that way, very, you know, like hair on fire, practice like your hair, hair's on fire kind of person. That was always my perception of Ajahn Mun. I really, that's my perception of him. And then I read this. This is his uh, enlightenment song. And another person altogether comes out of this. And I I love how he talks about his quest for freedom and how his relationship to the aggregates, and particularly the sanya, perception, allowed him to find freedom. So I'll read it. Once there was a man who loved himself and feared distress. He wanted happiness beyond the reach of danger. Can you relate? You know, there's Ajahn Mun as every man of every person. So he wandered endlessly. Wherever people said that happiness was found, he longed to go. But wandering took a long, long time. He was the sort of man who loved himself and really dreaded death. He was clinging to the aggregates. He truly wanted release from aging and mortality. Then one day he came to know the truth. Abandoning the cause of suffering and compounded things, he found a cave of wonders of endless happiness his body, a cave of wonders, of endless happiness, his body, in the skillful relationship to body. He didn't, body stayed the same. Something changed in his relationship to his body. As he gazed throughout the cave of wonders, his suffering was destroyed, his fears appeased. He gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace. The heart knowing the Dhamma of ultimate ease sees for sure that the khandas are always stressful. The Dhamma stays as the Dhamma. The khandas stay as khandas. That's all. Nothing changes. The khandas are still khandas, but his relationship to them has changed. Before I used to think that sanya, perceptions, were the heart, meaning were the center of his experience, labeling inner and outer, which was why I was fooled. Now the heart's in charge. And heart here is chitta. It's really mind heart. The heart's in charge with no concerns, 
no hopes of relying on any one sanya, perception at all. Whatever arises and passes away, there's no need to be possessive of sanyas or try to prevent them. So again, not being obstructive, not resisting experience. When the heart sees its own decayings, its impermanence, it's released from darkness, it loses its taste for them and abandons its doubts. It stops searching for things within and without. Its attachments all fall away. It leaves its loves and hates, whatever weighs it down. It can end its desires. Its sorrows all vanish together with the weighty cares that made it moan. The weighty cares that made it moan. As if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart, the cool heart is released by the heart itself. The heart is cool for it has no need to wander about looking at people. Knowing the mind source in the present, it's unshakable and unconcerned with any good and evils, for they must pass away with all other impediments. Perfectly still, the mind source neither thinks nor interprets. It stays only with its own affairs, no expectations, no need to be entangled or troubled, no need to keep up its guard. Sitting or lying down, one thinks at the source mind, released. I quite like Ajahn Mun now. So I know this can seem complex, as I keep saying, please don't make it so, Um, be with your practice as it is, but these doorways or maps, as I like to think of them, kind of expand the territory of our meditation practice, and particularly when that red flag arises, you know, it's like, Remember the robot in Lost in Space? Warning, 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 danger, danger. Suffering. Oh, what's happening? What's happening here? How am I perceiving? What's the Vedana? What's happening in the mind? What's happening in the body? How can I relate to this in a skillful way? This is the promise and the practice of working skillfully with the aggregates. So we take some time now for questions. Do you have any questions or comments? So of course, I want to go right where you kind of glossed over, which is the fifth one on consciousness. Um, I find that when I'm in my meditation, when I'm really on it, so to speak, I get to a place where it's almost, it, it feels like a, an I aming. An I aming? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, Hold it up a little. and I can't find. Hold the microphone closer. Closer? Mm-hmm. I can't really find the one who is I aming, mm-hmm. but there is that kind of knowingness. And f- if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that even that is one of these, what is the fifth of these. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't been able to get behind it or get 
deeper per se. So I'm wondering from there, where do I go? What more, like, Great, thank I'm not you. even sure how to pose the question. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand where you're going. Um, so the challenge is, or the practice is at that point, is just to notice, which is always our, so you notice the I aming, and what happens when you notice it? And, you know, maybe it continues, maybe there's a moment where there isn't a sense of I aming. And that's all you can do. There's nowhere to go. It's not like you have to do something because that's, again, arousing a sense of I need to get somewhere else other than where I am. It's just more and more subtle, the I am in getting subtler and subtler, you know, noticing the spaces between it. But we're talking really about, you know, let go of really any sense of I am there. Very subtle. So that's why I didn't want to talk about it a lot. But great place to explore. But also notice the wanting to get beyond that. You know, that's another... Can we just be right there with that awareness so the awareness is as steady as we can make it? It's, impo- you know, it's changing, but it's, it's, it's there. But it's not grasping at anything. It's not grasping at the I am, and it's not grasping to not I am. And it gets a little mysterious at this point, too, so that can be hard to talk about. But it really is just being willing to be there without grasping at either be, being or not being. Behind you, there's a couple. Right behind you, Gil. Can we bring back the music? <laughs> Actually, we found the source of the music. It was he was going? I looked over because he was going to come this morning. It was one of the caretakers who they, we had a staff retreat on, and he they had an informal time, and he put it on his background music. And as soon as I described, his face sort of went, "Uh oh, that was me." And he said he was going to come, and I was going to point him, but he didn't come. Could you um, give some examples to distinguish between? Sanya and Vinyana between perception and consciousness. I'm not sure I have that Good. very well. So the d- distinctions between consciousness, Vinyana, and perception. And sometimes these, I think it said, didn't you say, Guy, that they arise, you know, someone said that all three are inseparable or somewhere. Gil said that. Um, so often we can't distinguish. It's so immediate that I see this and I know it as a bell. Where we can often, where we can perhaps break it out was in like my description of the the big thing that I saw, where it's like, what is that? I saw it quite clearly, but I didn't know what it was. So the consciousness is the seeing of the, the shape, the color, the texture of it. That's consciousness. That's the knowing of the object. The sanya is when I saw, oh, that's a bundle of twigs carried by a person. That's the perception, the knowing, the naming, the recognition of it. Most of the time they happen so instantly together that we can't distinguish them. And so often in meditation we talk about just resting with the hearing and not you know, having to go, oh, that's a bird or a plane or whatever. But most of the time we know it immediately. You know, we can't not know it. It's, it's, it's usually when there is a not knowing of what it is, and that's why having unusual experiences is helpful for us as meditators. Is like, oh, what is I don't know this. 
One teacher talking about meditative experiences when she first experienced calm, she was kind of calm, you know, is that what this is? Because she didn't know it. It wasn't part. Can, sanya is a learned thing. You know, we've learned, just in that um, Oliver Sacks example, we think it's just natural that we know what all this stuff is. But we've learned what this is. Like if you told someone from the street to come in and pick up the Zabaton, they'd walk in and go, I don't know, what are you talking about? There aren't, I don't know what, a, but we know this is a Zabaton. So it's that learned, conditioned process, whereas the consciousness is the bare knowing. So just for clarity here, um, the feelings are really talking about sensation, right? The sensation? Mm -mm. Well, that's number two, feelings. Because in in uh, number four, the mind, thoughts, mood, emotions. Emotions, often we we call feelings. feelings. Thank you. Yeah, and I didn't clarify that. Usually I do, but I'm I often give a whole talk on Vedna. It's so important. We use the word feeling, but actually I think it's better feeling tone to not confuse it with emotions. It is just literally this pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasantness nor unpleasantness of any sense contact including the body or the mind. We can have an unpleasant thought or a pleasant thought or an unpleasant physical sensation. But Vedna is a mental functioning. It's a mental factor. You know, we can feel unpleasant feelings in the body, but what's knowing them, what's actually functioning is, is the mind, knowing it. It's a mental factor, Vedna. And it can apply to either the physical or the mental realm, to emotions, to thoughts, to visions, you know, you can close your eyes, it's just a, you can have an unpleasant vision. But it's, it's, it's not the same as emotion. It's just this pleasantness, unpleasantness, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that's said to arise. Everything, you know, everything that we're experiencing is having this tone. We're just not singling it out. And part of the, the practice and in our meditation practice is being aware of, you know, as a, an arising happens, my knee is aching. Oh, that's unpleasant. And then knowing that. So, uh, so sensations are, are in the body. It's the body. Sensations are in the body. The body. One more. What about this side, Gil? No one's, we haven't had Brooke. I had a similar experience to um, the man with the cap um, and have had that many times and gotten my knickers in a twist about it. So I, I think what... Uh, the teaching that it's not no self but non-self has really opened something mm-hmm. for me. So when I got to that uh, I am place mm-hmm. of just that knowing, you know, I always was trying to do some battle with it. I was mm-hmm. writing about this. Somehow I could conquer it or disappear it. Or, right. Yeah, I mean, that was where all the source of confusion yes. was. And 
I think what I briefly, momentarily understood is if I just didn't claim it as I, yes. then there was no problem. Great. Thank you, Brooke. Yeah. yeah. And really, you know, the, 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 often what we think we have to do is get rid of this. That's, and that's the annihilationist that in the earlier quote, the Buddha said, no, it's not that. But just be with what is without clinging. And, it and, then it's just, and then it's just space and knowing, and it's not complicated. Yes. That's what's striking me. It's yes. all very simple, simple, but it's hard to believe it's so simple. Yes. So that's the new experience. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. We should end now because um, we have to have a short break and then go to interviews. Um, so thank you for the sharing this afternoon in our exercise. We'll explore this theme more. Um, I want to make a couple of announcements. Because we're in groups and, and preparing all of these presentations, we're having practice leaders for the sittings this afternoon. Instruction on ringing the bell for those of you who are new. Heavy striker, big bell. You only need to tap it very softly to get a nice sound. I tend to tap it to the edge of the striker on the edge of the lip of the bell, but many people do it different ways. But you can always hit it again. You can't take back. A loud sound. Um, you can sit up, please sit up here for the practice leader, but you can sit in a chair if you're more comfortable in a chair and just move the bell. Um, the, at the 3.45 sitting, um, we'll finish at 4.15, then you'll just have a sh- take a short bathroom break if you need it, but we'll come right back in for the exercise. So please just take a short break and come back in at that time. Um, I, wasn't just, I was going to say something about walking, but I think I don't have time. They should check, you say? Oh, they, I think you said something about on time. Um, yes, yeah, so if you weren't on in, didn't have an interview today, yesterday you should be on the list today. If you're not on the list today, please let us know. It means we don't have a sheet. And please, right now, if you... Let the people who are in the first round of groups go first to the bathroom, and that way we can start our, including us, if we could let us go in first, that would help. And we can start our interviews. So thank you.